Thank you, John, and thank you all for being here. It takes some courage to come to an event like this, and uh, I'm glad to be a part of it myself. Let me pray one more time. Father, I ask that what I say here would be both true and faithful to your word on the one hand, and spoken in a way that would be winsome and healing and strengthening and encouraging and empowering on the other hand. So be our teacher now and come and do a great work in this conference. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. As often happens with me, I give titles way ahead of time, and and then as I'm preparing the message, they don't work exactly the way I want them to, and so I adjust the titles. And here's here's my new title, Um, Sorrowful Yet Always Rejoicing, How a Christian Hedonist Experiences the Sorrows of Deep Disappointment. So, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We're going to end by thudding that statement over and over from 2 Corinthians 6.10. And then, how a Christian hedonist experiences the sorrows of deep disappointment. So, this is a talk mainly about the inner workings of the soul and how you experience things. And frankly, it's a talk off of my front burner, not because I have any major disability physically, but because there are other things in my life that require me to to pursue this, which I think will become evident. A Christian hedonist believes God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Or as Edwards, Jonathan Edwards put it, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. Which means that we can never reduce God-glorifying obedience to mere action, the action of our body or the action of our reason. God-glorifying obedience always includes the state of the heart. As Paul said, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you can never reduce the virtue of giving to the act of giving. You must always include the state of the heart in giving. God loves a cheerful giver. He's more honored by joyful, hearty giving than by constrained and begrudging giving. And so it is with all of our acts of love. Paul said, if I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing, which means actions alone are nothing morally. But rather, whether the heart in a certain disposition toward God is present, makes the physical movement of muscles into a moral reality. 
So treasuring God, being satisfied in God, delighting in God should be the ground and the goal of all of our actions, which puts a very high premium on the state of our hearts, which raises my question about how Christians handle sorrows or the sorrows of of deep disappointments very high. So if the state of our hearts matters in all our behavior, then how do we experience in our hearts the arrival of profound sorrows through, through deep disappointment? It becomes a very urgent question. I have in mind in this conference things like the shock of a baby born with multiple disabilities, in that moment when you when the doctor says, I think we have a problem here. The jolt of an accident that leaves you paralyzed for life. The experience of growing up from birth to adulthood on a path of 50 surgeries. A marriage dominated by the never-ending vigilance over a child and then an adolescent and then an adult who can't care for himself, the onset of a disease that gradually takes away all your muscles until all you have is your eyelids. I take it as a given that Christians experience sorrow, grief, pain, heartache, growing frustration, groaning, deep and long-term disappointment. And the Bible has so much to say about those realities and how we deal with them, but the Bible does not say that they don't exist or shouldn't exist in the heart of a child of God. The Bible never denies either suffering or the emotional accompaniments of physical suffering, namely all of the psychological turmoil that arises from it, which is what I mean in the word sorrow of deep disappointment. A deep disappointment is you had a big expectation and it's shattered, it's gone, and it's gone forever. You'll never have it back, it's over. And, and the sorrow then is, are the emotional waves that can break over that, that disappointment. So my question then becomes how in all of this sorrow, grief, pain, heartache, groaning, frustration, owing to these profound disappointments, how, how are they to be experienced by the Christian hedonist? Or you could just say by the Christian if you prefer. The person who believes God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. How are we to experience those? So the focus of this message is going to be on the inner workings of the soul, the Christian soul, rather than mainly on the theological foundations of God's sovereignty, though I have something to say about that. It's true that without God's sovereignty, the inner workings of the soul that I'm going to be talking about would not be possible. So I will give a word about God's sovereignty since it is so foundational to what I really want to talk about, namely the dynamics of 
of the Christian experience of sorrow. And where we're going is to a paradoxical experience, a paradoxical emotional experience called sorrowful yet always rejoicing, which I take from the Apostle Paul. Now, the reason that the inner workings of the soul biblically are not possible without a grasp of the sovereignty of God is that the strength of hope, peace, joy, contentment, gladness, satisfaction, delight in God that sustain the soul, the strength, the joy of the Lord is your strength, the strength that, that sustains and upholds the soul, that strength is rooted in the confidence that God has the authority, the freedom, the wisdom, the power to accomplish all the good that he has promised to his embattled children. If I didn't believe that God was smart enough or strong enough or free enough or wise enough to fulfill the spectacular promises that he has made that look impossible to fulfill for someone like me, then I simply would despair. Which means that the sovereignty of God is essential for the inner workings of my soul to be sustained. In other words, no obstacle of nature, no obstacle of Satan, no obstacle of the failure or the sin of man can stop God from making all my experiences serve my wholeness and joy forever. Nothing can stop him. He's sovereign. Now, I want to just pause here and just strike a note because I want you to hear what I just said. What I, what I just said was that the sovereignty of God is precious to me, not mainly because of a backward glance about the nature of causality. How did I get to be disabled? But rather a future glance of possibilities given this. Now, both are true. But you can get entangled in this so deeply, the sovereignty of God simply becomes a theological problem for you, trying to account for how all that works, when in fact, the way to take the next step in life or finish this conference or go home and face the rest of life is, how can you do that? You can't, which is why the sovereignty of God then becomes so precious For example, if you lived in New Jersey and water had been up to your roof level for a week and everything is gone, lots of precious things are gone, maybe even, as we read in the news, two of your children were swept out of your arms and found days later dead. The sovereignty of God could either be focused on as, why God? Or, now God, I face an impossible situation. My kids are gone. Everything I owned is gone. My heart is gone. Can you do anything with that? And if he's not sovereign, 
I don't know what I would say to that person. So you, you catch the difference there and why the, the shifting from the causality dimension over onto the purposeful possibility, powerful, future-opening, miracle-working future makes all the difference in the world. This, the, the fact that God is sovereign in bringing to the present situation what is, is a precondition of this hope, which is why it's believed. So let me give a brief glimpse at this sovereignty. One of the most sweeping statements and foundational statements of, of a disability reality here at Bethlehem is Exodus 4.11, where God says to Moses, who is doubting that his eloquence is sufficient to do the task God has given him to do, says to him, who made man's mouth, Moses? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So the disability of impediments of speech, the disability of deafness, the disability of blindness are in his hands and he gives them to whom he will, according to Exodus 4, 11, to which we then respond, what about natural causes? What about satanic? causes? What about sin causes, my own or others? And the answer is that these are real and are involved in our disabilities and sorrows and miseries. They simply are not finally decisive. They are not ultimately decisive in what comes to pass in my life. God is. Let's take a few examples of these kinds of causes. The most fundamental text in the Bible for me, I preached on it in my first year at this church 33 years ago to make sure the people I would visit in the hospital would know what I was not going to say to them. Namely, that if you believed, you wouldn't be here. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is Romans 8.22. And not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I take that as to be a massive paradigm statement for reality. The, the whole creation was subjected to futility in the fall and we're part of it and therefore Paul stresses even we who have the first fruits of the new age in the Holy Spirit groan, waiting, waiting, waiting. That's what this life is. For the redemption of our bodies. Therefore, physical causes for brokenness are real. We participate in the material, physical, broken, futile world. And God has detailed control over that 
world. He did not subject it futility, stand off on the other side of the universe and watch it go haywire with no involvement. That is not the kind of God presented in the Bible. Last Sunday, I happened to preach on the sovereignty of God, and I summed up with this statement giving text for all of these. The roll of the dice, the fall of a bird, the crawl of a worm, the movement of stars, the fall of snow, the blowing of wind, the loss of sight, the suffering of saints, the death of everybody are included in the statement of God, I will accomplish all my purpose. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And therefore, though we say yes to natural causes, We don't give them ultimacy because God rules the natural world that he himself has created and subjected to futility. Satan, what's his role in our disabilities? Most everybody would agree natural causes, genetic causes, all kinds of strange physical things are at work. What about Satan? He's real, he's wicked, he's a liar, he's a murderer, he hates you. And he is involved in damaging and hurting you. Acts 10, 38, Jesus went about healing people who were oppressed by the devil. And under God's government, he can't do anything except by permission from the Almighty. And this is illustrated several times in the Bible. Job is the most remarkable example. Peter's another example at the, at the uh, denials. Job, Satan gets permission from God, has to get permission. He goes out and he strikes him. It says Satan strikes him with loathsome sores. It says so. Chapter 2, verse 7, Satan struck him with loathsome sores. And then when he answers his wife, Job says to her, shall we receive good from God at the hand, at good at the hand of God and not evil? And the inspired writer of the book adds, thus he did not sin with his lips. Chapter 2, verse 10. And to sum it all up, at the end of the book, the inspired writer said, Job was comforted for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. That's not Job's bad theology. That's not Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. That's the inspired writer giving a big summary statement of what happened to Job when Satan struck him. God struck him when Satan struck him because God controls Satan. He has a leash. Think of it this way. I believe in the word permission under a sovereign God. I don't think it's a contradiction to say God controls all things and and speak in terms of God's permitting things to happen because foreknown permissions equals plan. If you know how it's all going to sort out and you see how you could let certain things go, let Satan do certain things, let sinners do certain things to other people, and you see all the eventualities of that and you could stop it and you don't stop it, 
It's because you see how it's all going to work out and you're moving. This is called plan, purpose, wisdom. So yeah, Satan's real. And he's involved in our lives. Sins, first nature, then Satan. What about sins? My sins and your sins against me or mine against you. You may smoke your way into emphysema. You may lose a leg when a drunk driver sinning smashes into you. Our sins and the sins of others bring much misery into our lives. Some of we can control, some of we cannot. They are not decisive. Again, see the point I'm making. I mean, natural causes are real, not ultimately decisive. Satan is real in his causality, not ultimately decisive. Sin is real in its causality, not ultimately decisive. And and the story that is most comforting of all, I've gone back to it over and over again, is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, who is so grievously sinned against by his brothers. And at the end of the story, chapter 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, he says to them, and God meant it for good. I think it is right for a child of God to to look at all the natural causes, all the satanic causes, all the sinful causes that have brought him to the state he's in and say, you Satan, you nature, you sin, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. And, And the reason... God can mean good for people like me who don't deserve any good from God is that he spoke those words over the murder of his son. Remember that text, Acts 4, 27 and 28? Herod and Pontius Pilate and the peoples of Israel and the Gentiles were gathered together in this city to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, namely kill your son. So God looked at Herod's mockery. He looked at Pilate's spinelessness. He looked at the raging crowds, crucify him, crucify him. He looked at the vicious soldiers pushing down crown of thorns. And he said, you all mean it for evil, don't you? Oh, yes, you do. Not I. I'm saving millions. When you, when you look at the sovereignty of God at the center of the universe, namely the cross of Jesus, you know you owe your life to the sovereignty of God. You know you owe your soul and your eternity to the words of God spoken over the worst sin ever done. They meant it for evil. And I'm meaning it right now for good. And if that can be spoken over the death of his son, the murder of his son, then it will not then be surprising, will it? 
that for us who are hidden in the Son, who are cleaving to the Son, who are loving the Son for the forgiveness of our sins and for the presence of his righteousness, that he would allow us to speak over all the miseries of our life. They mean it for evil, but not God, my Father. Not anymore. My Father means this for good. And the good that he means, just to mention a few, would be 2 Corinthians 1.9, greater faith. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely on God. Or Hebrews 12.11, greater righteousness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Or greater hope, Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope or greater glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So you, Satan, you mean it for evil. You, natural causes, you mean it for evil. You, sinner, you mean it for evil. But not God. God means it for good, the good of greater faith, the good of greater righteousness, the good of greater hope, the good of greater glory in the age to come. Or as John 9, where the title of this conference comes from, verse 3, maybe don't even bother considering secondary causes. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in his blindness and healing. So this conference is based on the conviction that God is sovereign like that. Nature, Satan, sin are real, which means that prayer and truth and medicine are good. Okay, get that. Prayer to alleviate pain. Truth to speak into pain. Medicine to minimize pain are all part of that level of causality and the reduction or removal of that causality, but they're not finally and ultimately decisive. God is. So the sovereignty of God for us is not, not mainly a theological problem. It's, it's mainly an invincible hope. It's not something where we linger over the past trying to figure out God's workings to bring me to where I am, but rather a focus on the future where we say the impossibilities of my life are no longer impossible because I have a sovereign God. Nothing is too hard for him. And he makes promises to me. I will meet your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. I will strengthen you, help you, uphold you, with my victorious right hand. I will never leave you or forsake you. I won't let any testing befall you, but what I give grace to endure. I will take the sting away from your death by the blood of my son. I will raise you from the dead, imperishable, and I will transform your lowly body into a a body like my glorious body by the power that enables me to subject all things to myself. He promises us those things. And if he's not sovereign, those are just words in the wind. But if he is, they cannot fail. 
they cannot. I can do all things, he said, and no purpose of mine can be thwarted. Job 42, verse 2. Which now brings me back to my original question. So, how does a Christian hedonist experience the sorrows of deep, long-term disappointment in view of that kind of news? Or more specifically, how do you grieve deeply, sorrow deeply, hurt deeply, yet never relent in your conviction that God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him? What's that like? What does it feel like? Here's one true and inadequate answer. We'll start with the inadequate answer that's true and biblical. Namely, we experience sorrow and joy sequentially. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night. Joy comes with the morning. Pretty clear, right? First one. Then the other. And that's true. And dreadfully inadequate. If we stopped there and said, there it is. There's the answer to how we experience the sorrows of life. We experience them in sequence. There's sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're sad. Sometimes we're weeping and sometimes we're rejoicing. And that's what life is. We just move in and out of seasons. And that would be a true and a superficial and inadequate description of what the Bible holds out to us. The deepest working of the human heart comes when we ask the question, during the times of weeping, during the times of sorrow, can we feel joy? Or is it always sequential? Can it be simultaneous? Should it be simultaneous? Interpenetrated. Joy and sorrow at the same time, in the same soul. And my answer is yes, and I want to give you a biblical picture of that experience and encourage you to pursue it. I call it the paradoxical emotional experience of sorrow and disappointment. I already mentioned the key text, 2 Corinthians 6.10, where Paul says, we are regarded as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, not sorrowful and later rejoicing, but sorrowful and always rejoicing, followed by as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul really means, really means it when he wrote in Philippians 4, 4, 
rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. But here in this phrase, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, I want to stress that he's really sorrowful. This letter of 2 Corinthians has 18 of the 25 uses of lupeo, to be sorrowful or grieving or sad in it. In other words, this is his most sad letter, 2 Corinthians is. And in it, he describes why he is sorrowful. And let me overwhelm you for just one minute with his reasons. We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, with countless beatings. He can't remember how many times. I tell you, if I got one beating in the public scare, I would remember that beating. I'd remember every one of them. I'd remember the names, the faces, the dates, the times. He can't even remember how many times people went after him with rods and beat him. Countless beatings. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That's 39 times 5. These long leather strips with a professional executioner, sometimes with little pieces of shell embedded in the leather. 39 of those lashes leaves your back stripped, jelly-like. Takes weeks and weeks to heal, and then it happens a second time. Takes a little longer to heal, and then it happens a third time takes a little longer to heal. Then it happens a fourth time. takes a little longer to heal. Then it happens a fifth time. And by this time, surely if you were Paul, you'd say, I don't think I want this job anymore. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If you treat your servants this way, I, I don't. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On journeys... In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger on the, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. All that just to say, when he said sorrowful, he meant it. Yet, always rejoicing, real grief, real pain. Not just physical pain, but the real sorrows that go with it. In that state, he says, not just sorrow will last for a night and joy comes with the morning, but sorrow lasts for the night and joy lasts through the night. Always rejoicing. So he meant it when he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Rejoice always. The paradoxical emotional experience in the heart of the believer in the face of great disappointment. Let me give you a few 
examples of this in the Bible. I think to have a disabled child or to have a disabled spouse or to be disabled is massively life-altering, but not as eternally threatening as to have a child who's not believing in Jesus. So listen to Paul. He wasn't married. He just loved so many people like family. I am, this is Romans 9, 1 to 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Don't let that go by too fast. Let's start over. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, I love these people not just because they're lost and I'm told to love my neighbor. They're like family to me and they're not believing. They have a zeal for God. It's not according to knowledge. They're on their way to perdition. And I have unceasing anguish. Now, if we were to ask him, have you forgotten that you said rejoice always? Have you forgotten? I think Paul would say, I haven't forgotten. I've already told you how I do this. Unceasing anguish and always rejoicing. Anguished and always rejoicing. There's no reason why we should think any differently. He already told us, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, why when we get to the unceasing anguish piece would we think anything other than what he said over here? Paul, this is strange. I don't know if I know how to do this. I have a hard time doing this. Whether it's with regard to my own disability, the disability of my kids, the lostness of my kids, the state of the world, the miseries of my marriage, whatever. I just have a hard time doing these, doing this. Anguish, easy. Always rejoicing in and through and under and around that anguish. I'm just giving you a picture of the paradoxical reality of the Christian soul. Lest you only live in the sequential mode. First a little weeping, then a little happiness, then a little more weeping, then a little happiness. I just don't want you to settle for that. Because Paul didn't and you'll see Jesus didn't either. Here's another example. Romans 12, 15 Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You might think, well, that's sequential, isn't it? You're around some people and they're happy and, and, and you can be happy with them because that would serve their happiness. And you're around people at a funeral and they're weeping and you're not going to be chipper. You're going to be sober and weeping. And, and so there's two different experiences. What's the big paradox there? And you all know that's not the way it is. If you know enough people and you care deeply enough, 
you always know somebody who's weeping and you always know somebody who's rejoicing at the same time. You can't carve your life up. You can't, you can't say, well, I'm going to feel empathy for the one now, but I won't feel any empathy for the other now. I mean, you can try that, but it wouldn't be serving them. It wouldn't be loving in your own heart. God and you know people right now. You can think of someone right now who's broken emotionally and deeply sad. And you can think of someone right now, perhaps they just got married or they just had a baby or something good just came into their life and they're just so happy. And your heart wants to be profoundly empathetic with them, both of them, all of them. Is that possible? Yes. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Empathizing with the weepers and the rejoicers profoundly in ways that seem impossible emotionally. But when you look at the Bible, you say, okay, Lord, grow me deep into this. Grow me up into this. Another example. Let's take God at this time. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which is quoted in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Hmm. So the, the word that catches us is the word delights. You just reproved him, so you reprove him in whom you delight. You reprove somebody because you're disapproving of something they're doing or thinking or feeling. You're disapproving. You don't like it, and you're rebuking them. You're disciplining them. It may be a severe discipline, and he says you're doing it to the son in whom you delight. And you might try to carve this up and say, well, he's delighting in the son and disapproving of the behavior. No, that's not what it says. He disapproves this son as a misbehavior. Misbehaviors don't float in the air. They come from somewhere. Misbehavior comes from bad places in the heart that need fixing. And it says he reproved him. He reproved him and he delights in him at the same time in the same soul. He does. That's the way he looks at you. If you don't have... Got to get this one figured out. You got to get justification and slow, painful sanctification figured out here that your father loves you. He's got his arms around you and he looks you in the eye and says, you, you delight me. Spank. <laughs> Why'd you spank me? Because I do not like that attitude. And it's coming from somewhere and you need to be rid of it. As I have tried to think about this, because it really is very personal to try to figure out for me and Noel and our children how to be this kind of parent and how to enjoy this kind of father. Um, God has pleasure in me and displeasure in me at the same time. In fact, I would say it is his pleasure in me because of Christ 
that keeps his displeasure in me from becoming contempt and making it healing. It's his pleasure in me, in Christ, that keeps his displeasure in me from becoming contemptuous. He's never contemptuous towards his children. He never looks on his children and sings like, you never do anything right. I can't believe you. You're worthless. God never talks like that to his children. He just disapproves of what we do and the places in our heart and the aspects of our old man that keep us doing that. And he will devote himself to us so that his displeasure becomes a healing displeasure and a loving displeasure and a supportive displeasure. That's the challenge of parenting like God. Okay, let me try to sum this up. I've got a a concluding statement and five brief applications. Number, the conclusion goes like this. So God is so sovereign over the disasters and the disappointments of, of our lives that he is able to make every one of them serve our everlasting joy. He is so sovereign over all the disasters, all the disappointments of our lives that he is able to take all of them and make all of them serve our everlasting joy. This sovereign grace is the ground of your joy in sorrows. Not after sorrows, but in the sorrows of deep disappointment. So the Christian hedonist does not merely pursue joy after sorrow. He pursues joy in sorrow, in disappointment. So the watchword of your life then becomes sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now, here are five implications or applications of this. And it really is quite profound what happens in a church when this takes hold and what happens in you, your family. But I'll give you five. Here we go. Number one, if you experience this paradox of emotions, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, you will never have to pretend again. Your sorrow will be real. Your joy will be real. You won't ever have to be ashamed of saying, I am very sad because your sadness will not contradict or exclude being very glad. That's number one. Number two. If you experience this paradox of emotions, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, you will be able to bear the weight of sorrow that is inevitable in this world of sin and brokenness. The joy you know in the very moment of heavy sorrow will keep the sorrow from crushing you. It doesn't make the sorrow less weighty. By strength, it makes the sorrow less destructive. So the second one is this experience without minimizing the sorrow prevents it from destroying you. 
Number three, if you experience this paradox of emotions, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, your sorrow will not ruin the joy of others and your joy will not offend the sorrow of others. This is delicate. This is the way we want to be, right? You want to walk through life in and out of relationships that are either sorrowing or rejoicing. And you don't want to ruin them. You don't, you don't want to hurt anyone. You don't want to offend the sorrowing. You don't want to uh, rain on the party. Your joy will, will be deep with its roots in the springs of God's grace, the very same grace that sorrowing souls need. So your joy will be rooted down in grace and it will, it will understand grace as what people need and you'll have discernment as to how to bless them. Your sorrow will not be morose, gloomy, self-pitying. I'm speaking to myself mainly here. This is my, my battle. You know, I am defending sorrow in this message. I'm not defending moroseness. I'm not defending gloominess. I'm not defending self-pity. I'm hating those in myself. This sorrow that you have will have real love in it and love cares for the good of others so that you don't ruin their party. Now you may feel, see, I, I just think there's a huge amount of selfishness in sorrow that walks into a happy room and says, you all wouldn't be happy if you knew what I knew about me. You know? if you, you, and you just ruin it. You just spread your gloominess everywhere. So, and you're like, what, you're the center of the universe here? Get a life. You, they don't need to know you. You don't have to ruin this party. Jesus can sustain you for an hour tonight. He can put a smile on your face. He can have you play some of the games. He could, and then you go home and cry some more. You think that's, that's not hypocrisy. That's love. Because it's different. The sorrow that is being sustained by interpenetrated simultaneous joy is of a different kind than worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow has so much self in it, so much selfishness in it. And godly sorrow is real sorrow, but it's just been changed, profoundly changed by this underpinning of peace and contentment and satisfaction and joy in a sovereign God. So that when you walk in each situation, you walk into a, a broken situation and your sorrow enables you to sweetly empathize. And you walk into a happy situation and your joy rises to enable you to be a part of it. And people will watch over the long haul. They, they won't miss you, your pain if you're real. If you're, if you're walking in a church's life and you're just living a normal life week in and week out, they'll know your situation and they will love you for not raining on the party and not being glib and silly at the funeral. Number four, if you experience this paradox of emotions sorrowful yet always rejoicing, the ministries of your church from the worship service 
to the youth group, to the ministry of disability, will be free from silliness and trifling and will have the aroma of Christ with his wonderful paradoxes. The aroma of Christ who wept over Jerusalem like this. Would that you knew the day of peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, Luke 19, 41. And yet, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He wept and he rejoiced over the same city because of the same condition. Strange Savior. We need people like that in the world who are inexplicable in worldly categories. We need church services that people walk into and there is joy here, but it's quite serious. But the serious is not heavy. It's that I can't figure this out here. This is... This is different. And many, many thousands of our churches are throwing this away in the name of being cute or clever or slapstick or like the latest TV or show some movies or anything to make it feel something that the people already know. You don't want them to know. You want them to be stunned. And so God had showed up from another world and created something new on planet Earth. Not the latest movie, or the latest comedy, or the latest talk show host. Why would you want to have the people feel at home with that? You want them to taste something so stunningly strange. So that's what I'm trying to do, is just talk about the strangeness of Christian life. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What does that feel like on Sunday morning? What's, what's a youth ministry feel like? What does a disability ministry feel like? Where that paradox, that strange miracle has taken hold. The spirit that will pervade your church will be joyful seriousness and serious joyfulness. It won't be morose. It won't be miserable. It won't be self-pitying. It will have a profound Gladness about it. I, I don't do many welcomes anymore because of my present transition, but I used to stand right here and downtown, welcome the people every Sunday. I loved it. I loved, I loved to have that little informal moment because I'm, I'm, you know, in the pulpit, I'm Mr. Authority. And down here, I'm, I'm daddy in the living room. Kind of. um, and I'm, I was so profoundly aware, I'm going to welcome these people in such a way that those who are coming out of the funeral and out of the wedding feel good about this moment. That's impossible. Isn't that wonderful to have an impossible job? You know what it makes you do? Pray. Makes you desperate. Makes you want miracles to happen. Let me have a demeanor down here so that the, the hurting can say he knows and the ecstatic can say he knows, he gets it. And everybody has a daddy who gets it. It's a wonderful thing to at least try to be a pastor. 
That's number four. It will, it will affect, if, if you catch the paradox of these emotions, it will affect your whole church. And the last one is, if you experience this paradox of emotions, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, the beauty and the worth of Christ will be exalted because he is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And if you're always rejoicing, there's always some flavor of his excellency in your life, some flavor of his worth and his value, his beauty. There's, there's something about you that means you're loving Jesus. You're valuing Jesus. He's precious to you right now with all the tears flowing down. And on the other hand, the tears that are flowing and the genuineness and the authenticity of your sadness shows you're not out of touch with the ugliness of sin in this world and the horrors of its effects in human life. You're not out of touch. You're not glib. You're not silly. You're not superficial. You're not blind. You're not naive. And when you get that in one person, the joy reflecting the infinite worth of Jesus and the sorrow reflecting the ugliness and the horrors of sin, you meet somebody more like Jesus and, and you want to be like him. So we end. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. May the Lord work this paradox, this miracle. And I speak, please, don't overread this man. I speak as one trying to understand and do this as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor right now, trying because I'm speaking over my head. I'm saying words that I wish were more true here. Don't walk out of here saying, well, I guess some people got that wrapped up. Nobody's got this wrapped up. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lifting up a, a possibility that we're all looking at and saying, really, Lord? Really? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Oh, show me, show me what that would be like in my life. So God, that's where we end now in prayer. Not just show in the sense of put it on a piece of paper or in a sermon, but show by the Holy Spirit all through this day as each contribution is made to this beautiful picture of what it's like to walk as a Christian in suffering. Grant, I pray, that every angle at which we come at it, you would be mightily glorified. Teach us how to do this, I pray. In Jesus' name.